Good morning. Today's reading is from Leviticus 10. It'll be found in the Blue Bibles that are provided on page 51. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take it and keep it. It's yours. Or if you just want an ESV Bible, you don't have one, please take it. It's yours. We're going to read now from Leviticus chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorised fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your head do not let the hair of your heads hang loose and do not tear your clothes lest you die and the wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting lest you die for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons, with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever, a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Moses spoke to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, his surviving sons. Take the grain offering that is left of the Lord's food offerings and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place, because it is your due and your son's due from the Lord's food offerings, for so I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you. For they are given as your due and your sons' due from the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. And the thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons, and you as your due forever, as the Lord has commanded. Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burnt up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you, that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation? to make atonement for them before the Lord. Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary, as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, 
Behold, today they have offered the sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. Well, let me begin by asking you this morning, how do you like your tea? That may seem like an Rather, it, it, will, it will link, trust me. You see, for me, uh, it doesn't much really matter uh, if you invited me to your house and offered me uh, a cup of tea and made it with too much milk or too much sugar or something, I'm not sure I would even notice. Thanks, brother. But I have learned uh, over the years that uh, if I'm making... Oh, she's not even here. If I'm making tea for Sarah... Josh's wife, uh, it's better that I just let her make it. Because uh, to begin with, uh, it, it has to be good quality tea. Uh, it, cannot, it cannot be tea leaves. Uh, sorry, it cannot be a bag. It must be leaves. Uh, you have to let it brew for just the right amount of time. Uh, and then you have to put in just, just a little bit more than a drop of full cream, fresh milk. And if you, if you get that amount wrong, just like, just, you know, a couple of milliliters, micro milliliters more or less, uh, then you've ruined it. Now, now I, I checked with her, so she does not mind me saying this. It's all true. <laughs> and it is all true. <laughs> well, after almost 12 years, uh, I think Robin has actually figured it out, and she can now make Sarah a cup of tea that she is happy with. And I'm sure if I made Sarah a cup of tea, that uh, even though it would be very far from perfect, she would be gracious in receiving it and she would only tip it out when I wasn't looking. It raises the question, uh, would she care more about me getting it right or whether I did it with, with a genuine heart out of love for her and desire to serve her? I sent her that and... Uh, and she said, do you want me to answer that question? <laughs> Look, while my opening story is lighthearted, as I mentioned before, our passage this morning and the things it speaks of are very far from lighthearted, aren't they? Obedience to the Lord and to his commands, they are quite literally a matter of life and death. So it's worth us asking ourselves the question, do you think God cares more about whether you obey him perfectly and get it exactly right or whether he cares about you having a genuine heart of obedience? We're going to consider that this morning as we look at Leviticus chapter 10. Now the chapter is broadly structured in three sections. The first and the third, oh, sorry, I forgot to put this up. A tale of two sets of sons is the heading of this morning's sermon. Uh, and it is called that because the structure of Leviticus chapter 10 is in verses 1 to 7, we have the story of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, and the response to their offering. And then verses 12 to 20 tell us of Eleazar and Ithamar, two of Aaron's other sons, and the response to their offering. And in between those two tales, we have some crucial commands given by the Lord to Aaron in verses 8 to 11. And so our headings this morning will follow those three sections. One, holy fire, two, holy statutes, and three, holy mercy. 
So may the Lord grant us hearts ready to hear and obey his word this morning. Let's begin with our first section, holy fire. Uh, Fire, uh, I'm not sure about you, it's one of the most fascinating things in the world to me. Uh, I can sit and stare at a campfire doing nothing else for hours. I just love watching the way that it works. Now, fire, kids, uh, what do you think of when you think of fire? Just give me the first word that pops into your head. Sorry? Hell? Oh, wow. You're in my household, aren't you? Uh, Anyone? Yeah? Hot? Is that what you said? Hot, hot. hot. That's right. Hot, hot. Anyone else? Smoke. Thank you. So, fire, yeah, all of these things are associated, but certainly heat, burning, warmth. Uh, It is is the thing that we most associate with fire. And of course, I, I, I guess in the way Reuben said that, the hot, hotness of fire can also be very dangerous. Can't it? You don't want to put your hand in a campfire. Much better to just watch it. Well, fire features prominently in this chapter in Leviticus chapter 10, and it does in many places in the Bible. Uh, One of those places is in chapter 9. Now, unfortunately, it's been a couple of weeks since we looked at chapter 9 together, so it would be easy for us to miss some of the connections between chapters 9 and chapter 10 in Leviticus. But thankfully, the most obvious comes from the final verse in chapter 9. So in your Bibles, have a read there from verse 22 of chapter 9. I'll have it on the screen if you don't have it. It says this, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. So you might remember in chapter 9, the priesthood for the tabernacle has just been ordained and everything done has been according to the Lord's commandments. And so he has been pleased in all that Israel has done and the glory of the Lord appears here. And then this happens in verse 24. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So this incredible uh, sign of the Lord, fire coming out, consuming the offering that's been given. And their response is, of course, worship and fear and reverence and joy. Behold, our God is a consuming fire. Talk about a mountaintop experience, right? This is the peak moment of Israel's worship, his glory being revealed, fire consuming the offering. The Lord is pleased. Which is why the fall of chapter 10 is all the more tragic. That is literally the verse that comes before verse 1 in chapter 10. The higher you are, the harder you fall when you hit the ground. Let's read the first couple of uh, verses of chapter 10.
Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. From mountaintop to deepest valley. It wouldn't be surprising if you uh, don't know who Nadab and Abihu are, the sons of Aaron, because they don't feature very much in the Bible's story. And yet they have propped up before. Popped up, sorry. Uh, they're first mentioned in Exodus chapter 6, verse 23, as sons born to, Adam, uh, to Aaron. Uh, these lists are usually in age order too. So this shows uh, that Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, were, were the eldest. And, and uh, a reference in Numbers confirms that. Uh, but more importantly, the next time they are mentioned is in Exodus chapter 24, verse 9. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders go up. So you see, this is some important company that they are keeping. Moses and Aaron are the only other guys who are named in this verse. And look what happens. Look what they did. It says, they saw the God of Israel. What, what an incredible, enormous privilege. They had obviously been part of the leadership of Israel and received these incredible privileges to be in the company of these men to witness God. Once again, that just makes what happens here in Leviticus 10 all the more tragic. You see, it's not surprising that these two sons of Aaron, given their standing, are mentioned as being some of the first to offer worship to the Lord, given their status. But this whole thing unravels very quickly. They put fire and incense in their censers. And my daughter this morning asked what a censer was. A, a censer is like a cup or a bowl shaped, uh, you know, that kind of container, usually on the end of a long handle. And it's used for this purpose, to put fire and incense in it as an offering. And the Bible tells us that they, they offered unauthorized fire. Now, other translations, uh, or perhaps your Bible might have a note which says that this word unauthorized can be translated as strange. Strange fire. Now, strange is, is probably the better word, uh, but the reason the ESV goes with unauthorized is because strange in our day, uh, it usually means weird or, or like not normal, right? And that's not what we're trying to get at. The, the, the Bible's not saying uh, they were just a couple of kooky random dudes and they offered this you know, weird fire. No, no, the, the sense of strange here is that of like a stranger, someone or something that does not belong. And that fits with our understanding of God, doesn't it? After all, that is what it means, that he is holy. We normally think of holiness as moral perfection or as uh, purity or something like that. And that is true. But holiness also describes the, the quality of God, of him being set apart, of him being completely other, completely different to anything else. There is nothing, there is no one like him. And so what we're seeing with the unauthorized fire of Nadab and Abihu is an offering of worship that is foreign to what God has commanded you see, the, the, the fire that they offer, offered to him comes from outside what the Lord commanded. 
Listen to Exodus chapter 30, verse 9, talking about the incense, uh, the altar of incense. He says, you shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering. And so you see, what Nadab and Abihu have offered before the Lord is not holy fire because it has come from outside of God's design. It is strange fire, unauthorized fire. As the rest of verse 1 says, they offered fire that the Lord had not commanded. Now the Bible doesn't tell us exactly uh, what it was that made it unauthorized fire. We don't know uh, the the specific reason that they uh, transgressed. Now when we compare this to Leviticus chapter 16, there is perhaps a hint there that they went into the most holy place which they were not supposed to do, and which we read about there, only the high priest did, and only once a year. Or it could be because of the instruction in verse 9 that they were drunk. And we'll get to that a bit later. But the Bible doesn't tell us directly why it was unauthorized. What it does tell us is that whatever it was, it was not what the Lord had commanded. And to disobey the Lord's commands is sin. Nadab and Abihu offer their offering, and the result is tragic. God immediately brings judgment upon their sin and consumes them. That phrase is is the exact same words in chapter 9. Our God indeed is a consuming fire. And as we see here, he is not just a consuming fire that displays his glory and goodness and greatness, but he's also one that consumes in wrath and judgment against those who disobey his commands. Verses like this make us uncomfortable, don't they? We think to ourselves, is not God merciful? I mean, especially given this, this cause, like even the description of it, it just seems like such a small thing. They just offered unauthorized fire. It's not like they murdered anybody. It's not like they went on some genocidal rampage. Does the punishment really fit the crime? Well, church... Yes, God is indeed merciful. And that is a truth that we will joyfully proclaim for the rest of our days and into eternity. And we will get to that later on. But we must never forget that even the smallest amount of disobedience to the Lord's commands is deserving of the holy fire of judgment. That is a truth that the Bible proclaims. The early church was reminded of this when Ananias and Sapphira tried to lie to the Holy Spirit and they were struck dead in Acts chapter 5. And even though we don't have people regularly dropping dead or disobeying, you know, for disobeying God today, These events signal a far deeper and more tragic consequence of sin. That of the unquenchable fire. That of the worm that does not die. 
the judgment of hell. If you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord, have you reckoned with this reality? Have you considered the the holiness and the holy fire of God and his judgment on sin? Well, I urge you to keep listening and to hear God's way of salvation from the fire of his judgment. Moses explains to Aaron what happened, which we read of in verse 3. He says to him, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Usually in Christian language, we use the word sanctified to describe the process of us as Christians becoming more holy, the process of sanctification, more like Jesus in our character, more obedient to the Lord. Well, that is obviously impossible for the Lord because he is already completely and perfectly holy. He has no uh, growth in terms of his holiness that is required. Well, the sense of the meaning here in the word sanctified is that the Lord is being treated as or proven to be holy, as the NIV puts it. He is glorified in his demonstration of his holy judgment. Aaron's response to this word from the Lord through Moses is to hold his peace. See, two sons have just died by the Lord's fire, but he recognizes that the Lord's judgment was right. That in doing so, in doing this, in consuming them for their sin, he is proven holy. Do we recognize that? Do we see God as proven holy in this action? God's wrath and judgment against sin is often an uncomfortable thing for us to to think about, let alone talk about. Something we often just think, oh, well, we just have to tolerate that, or perhaps we just have to begrudgingly accept that, or perhaps I'll just accept that that's in the Bible, but I just, I won't really talk about, you know, maybe we won't consider. But that is never how the Bible portrays it. God is glorified just as much in his pleasure in right worship as he is in his judgments on wrong worship. Let me say that again. God is glorified just as much in his pleasure in right worship as he is in his judgments on wrong worship. Do we feel the same way? This is why we must never be flippant about how we live our lives of worship, which includes what we do when we gather together as God's church. And it's also why we we ought to care about living holy lives before the Lord and not treating grace cheaply, as though Jesus' atoning sacrifice gifted us with a license to do whatever we want. Now, I think members of our church aren't at great risk of missing this point. Certainly all of us are prone to forgetting it and not living it. But I've I've certainly preached this many times and in our conversations, we talk about how we can strive to live grace-fueled lives that are pleasing to the Lord. And I'm thankful for that. 
But it is always worth reflecting on how seriously and how solemnly we take being obedient to the Lord. Do we grieve our sin? And do we grieve it, not just because we feel bad about doing the wrong thing, because we feel guilty, but because it dishonors the very God that we worship. We read in verses 4 and 5 that Moses calls a couple of Aaron's nephews to, to come and carry the bodies of Nadab and Abihu away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp, which, as we've seen in previous chapters, is often where the unclean remains are taken. And then Moses gives these instructions in verse 6. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. Moses tells Aaron and his other two sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, not to show the usual signs of grieving. We don't know exactly why, but it is probably because it shows their, their fear and reverence for the role that they have. These are the ones who are going to have to continue on in the priesthood. The penalty would be death and wrath for them to get this wrong. And so that is perhaps out of a sign of recognizing that Moses gives them this instruction. But he does instruct the whole house of Israel to bewail the burning. To bewail, to, to grieve, to, to greatly weep over. Now, why would they grieve? Why is it appropriate to grieve for this? Think about that for a moment. You see, naturally, of course, we, we think, well, the death of these two sons. Aaron's just lost his two elder sons. Israel has just lost two of its priests. And that's a reason that we can readily relate to, right? When we love people, when we lose them, we grieve their loss. That's very natural. But notice the wording here in verse 6. Bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. It doesn't say bewail the loss or the death of Nadab and Abihu. Grief over the Lord's judgment comes not just out of love for the people, but also out of love for the Lord. We grieve the fact that such sinfulness exists and rages against the holiness of the God that we love. Brothers and sisters, do we love both? Do we love the Lord? Do we love people? Do we love his holiness? Some Christians today find the concept of hell difficult and understandably so. But one of the first steps in denying hell is diminishing love for God and his holiness. 
diminishing love for all that is good and right. Yes, we grieve over those who receive the fire of God's judgment. But to grieve only their loss is to diminish the glory of God. Love for the Lord cannot be unhitched from love for others. If you find yourself moving in the direction of wanting to deny hell, wanting to deny God's judgment, it is likely because your love for others is is outsizing your love for the Lord. Bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. Moses finishes by giving another command that would result in death if they disobeyed. He says, don't, Aaron and sons, don't leave the entrance of the tent of meeting because if you do, you will die. And the reason is because the anointing oil of the Lord is upon them. Again, it highlights the significance of the role that they had and the importance of keeping the Lord's commands. As perhaps you can imagine, after witnessing what they did, their response was obedience. They did according to the word of Moses. And that brings us to our next section. Two, holy statutes. Well, statute isn't a word that we use much today. Uh, I would ask the kids, but I don't think any of you are going to know what it means. But if you do, shoot your hand up right now. Yeah, that's what I thought. And that's okay. Now, just so you know, it's not statue. Notice the T after the U. Statute. A statue is, you know, you, you carve that out of a rock and, yeah, put it in your front yard. A statute is basically the same thing as a command or a law. Right? A command or a law. And every statute from God is holy. It is good. It is right. God will, uh, God never has and never will command anyone to do something wrong. Because there is no evil in him, so his statutes reflect his character. Now, that might raise some questions for you about some of the commands that he has given to his people in the Bible. But that's a different conversation. We can talk about that later. But I make that point because, well, firstly, the heading I've given this section is holy statutes. And by that, I mean it is, they are the Lord's statutes and they are always holy. And so here he gives Aaron a few statutes in verse, uh, verse, beginning in verse 8. The Lord spoke to Aaron saying, now before we move on, I just want to point out here that this is actually the only time in the whole book of Leviticus that the Lord addresses Aaron and him only. Every other time it is either the Lord addressing Moses or both Aaron and Moses, but here the only time it's directly to him. And this is a, a very appropriate time for this to happen. Remember, in the previous chapter, Aaron and his sons had just been anointed and ordained, right? So he and his sons would now be the priesthood that would attend to the offerings of the people at the tabernacle. God was establishing them as the ones who would 
effectively take Moses' place. The priesthood would, Aaron and his sons would continue in that line to serve the Lord in that tabernacle worship. And so they have just been given this high and holy office. And then the very first act of service that we read about is two of his sons offering unauthorized fire. So I'm sure Aaron would have heard these words to the Lord with very attentive, sorry, from the Lord with very attentive ears. And so he gives him these three statutes. In verse 9, drink no wine or strong drink. That's the first one. Sorry, from verse 9. The second one, distinguish between the holy and the common and the unclean and the clean. And then thirdly, teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has told them by Moses. Three things. Don't drink wine or strong drink. Distinguish between holy and the common. Teach Israel all the statutes. Our readers of God's word for thousands of years have seen here in verse 9 and in this first statute that this is probably what Nadab and Abihu did. I mentioned it earlier. Um, now the text doesn't say it outright, but given that the Lord warns Aaron that if he or his sons enter the tent of meeting, having had some kind of alcohol or something like that, that they will die, I'd say there's a good chance that that's probably what happened. And the strong wording here, look at that. There is a, this is a statue that is biding forever. That's, that's very serious. And so in context, I'd say probably likely. At any rate, that's what holy priests should be doing. Now, the second command uh, is what we're going to see more of in the coming chapters. So chapters 11 through to 15, uh, we're going to see more of the priests discerning and figuring out what is clean, what is unclean, what is holy, what is common. And this was important. We've seen hints of it so far in Leviticus, but it will become even clearer in the chapters to come. And as we'll see, to get this badly wrong... Oftentimes it's, it's fine, you just have to do some washing or something to go from unclean to clean. But to get it badly wrong could result in death. And again, given what happened on this day, it's another ringing reminder of the seriousness of God's holiness and of his statutes. And finally in verse 11, they were to teach the people the very statutes that the Lord had spoken. Now, priests didn't just offer up the offerings. They, did, they weren't just the, uh, the, the person who took care of the blood and the killing and the spilling and the splashing and the, you know, all the stuff we've looked at over the last few weeks. But they also taught the people God's laws. They reminded them of how they were supposed to be God's holy people. And these things go together, don't they? How will you know what right worship is unless you are taught? How will you know what you should do, must do, ought to do, unless you know what those commands are? Now, this is also why when we get to the New Testament and tabernacle and temple worship is not part of the life of the church, we, we no longer sacrifice bulls and goats because Jesus is our perfect sacrifice and because we, our covenant is now in him, the new covenant. Well, well, this is why when we get to the New Testament, the leaders of the church are to be teachers 
You read through the pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy and in uh, uh, Titus and you'll see that, uh, and 2 Timothy, you'll see that there is a great emphasis on the fact that the overseers, the elders of the church are to be teachers. And that's why when we gather, instead of bringing animal sacrifices, as, as interesting as that would be, we hear the word of God taught. And that's also why, in case you were wondering, we call our leaders elders or pastors and not priests. Please don't call me a priest. For many reasons, but definitely for this one. I am not a priest. I am not the mediator. I am not the one who brings your offering of worship to make it acceptable to God. No, Jesus is that. And in the new covenant, that is the, the, the truth and the joy that we have. You see, there is no physical tabernacle. There is no physical temple in the new covenant because the church, the people are the temple. It's, it's one, of the, one of the unfortunate things, I think, that we often call church buildings sanctuaries as though they are somehow holy or something. Because this is just a, a room that the temple meets the people of God. I was in Singapore a couple of weeks ago, and one fun fact I learned was that the word for uh, church in Chinese, they have two separate words, one for the people and one for the building. I think that's excellent. It's such a shame for us that in the English language, we use the same word for both. And sadly, it leads to a lot of confusion, right? I think that's a helpful way of being consistent with the New Testament, as uh, Sam Albury said, sorry, I'm doing this off the cuff. It's something like people do not walk into a church. A church walks into a building. Yeah. And so as Christians in the new covenant, we... Uh, that is what we do. We, we, we no longer offer up bulls and goats, but we offer up our lives as living sacrifices of worship to the Lord. And so in many ways, these commands that the Lord gives to Aaron are the centerpiece of this chapter. The tales of the two sets of sons, they serve to emphasize the importance of Aaron and his son's responsibilities as priests. And that's what we see here in these commands. Up to this point, as Christians, we read this and we think, well, where is the grace? Are you wondering that? Where is the mercy? So far, all we have in Leviticus 10 is an example of God as a consuming fire of his severe judgment on a couple of disobedient sons. And now we've just heard more commands about what Aaron and his sons and the Israelites must do in order to be obedient, in order to not die. So we turn to the question from the beginning, does God demand perfect obedience with a threat of fiery judgment? What does he care more about? Perfect obedience or genuine hearts of obedience? Yes. And that takes us to our final section. Holy mercy. The Bible names four of Aaron's sons. And the next two in line were Eleazar and Ithamar. 
Going back to that same verse, Exodus 6.23, we see them in that list. And also they're mentioned in Exodus 28, where Moses gives instructions for the priestly garments. So they were obviously part of the priesthood. And because they don't die here in Leviticus 10, they are mentioned several times later on in the Leviticus and in the Old Testament. And so in verses 10, uh, 12 to 15, Moses gives Aaron, Eleazar, and Ithamar instructions on what to do with the offerings now. And again, you can just imagine hearing this. Uh, I mean, if it were me, I'd be like, okay, just, yep, this goat, yep, got to do that. Make sure I take that into the altar and sp- spill there and splash there. Uh, you, you just... You can imagine how they would have been feeling, hearing Moses. It's like, I have told you before, let me make sure you get it right again. And notice how the text makes a point of describing them as his surviving sons. The tragedy of that is real. And the instructions in these verses, they largely mirror the ones that we've gone through in previous chapters of Leviticus, so I won't go through them in detail. But it is important to note that in these verses, Moses gives specific instructions about eating the offerings. I point that out to you because that will become the, the issue in the final section uh, in the, uh, of, of chapter 10. So let's, let's read that now in verse, from verse 16. Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary? Since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you, that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord. Behold, Its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. Notice how Moses diligently inquires about the goat of the sin offering. Again, you can picture it. He is zealous for the holiness of of the Lord. He wants to make sure that the priests are carrying out their duties the way they should especially given what has just happened. You see, all it takes is unauthorized fire for holy fire to consume a couple of Aaron's sons in judgment. You can see why Moses is careful about every little detail of these offerings. His response upon seeing that the sin offering was burned up instead of eaten is what? Anger. He was angry that they had not done what they were supposed to have done. It's important to recognize, church, that righteous anger against sin is a legitimate response. It's actually the right response. And we know this because the Lord's righteous anger burns against evil and injustice. His wrath and his consuming fire are often described together in Scripture. We read an example this morning from Psalm 21. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. It is because of the Lord's anger against sin and disobedience and unholiness that his fire of judgment burns. 
And we, we understand this, don't we? To an extent, when we see injustices, when we see things that are wrong, we rage against them, rightly so. Brothers and sisters, do we share God's anger against sin? If you are uh, somebody who is more likely to downplay sin or to deny its existence or to deny its severity or perhaps to be lazy towards it or perhaps have a tendency more to just paper over it or perhaps have a tendency to just push it down in your mind or perhaps just make up excuses for it in yourself and in others. Then learn from Moses here. Moses was angry because he wanted to ensure that Aaron and his sons had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Do you rage against evil? But there's a very big warning for us here too. We are not God. We are not perfect in holiness and righteousness. Our anger is not always righteous, is it? Moses himself actually got angry with the people of Israel at Meribah. And even though he was understandably frustrated with them and their stubbornness. I mean, you think about how many years he's been going with them and they've just always done the wrong thing and complained about God. You can understand that. And yet he sinned significantly and disobeyed the Lord's commands in his anger. Psalm 106 verse 32 would recollect it like this. They angered him at the waters of Meribah and it went ill with Moses on their account. If you're familiar with the story, the Lord says the consequence of your actions, the judgment on you is that you will not lead the people into the promised land. All for that. Anger is no longer righteous when it is about us. Anger is not righteous when it is because our pride is offended. Anger is not righteous when our Comforts are violated. Parents, I can almost guarantee you that 99% of your frustration and anger towards your children is not righteous anger. And I know that because I'm a parent. No, brothers and sisters, righteous anger is all about loving God's holiness. And this is why Paul warns us in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. Notice how he separates those two things out. Notice how he assumes that we will be angry. But we are at such great risk of slipping into sinful anger, slipping into selfish anger that the Lord warns us. I fear that too many of us are too quick to think of our anger as righteous and too slow 
to heed the warning. Be careful with the fire of anger, brothers and sisters. Do not play with it. Well, Moses is angry because the sons did not eat the offering. And as we read about, eating it was commanded for an important reason. It's not just because that was the Lord's command. It's because eating the offering made atonement for the people. And let's read Aaron's response and defense in verse 19. Aaron and, oh, sorry, let me read it. And Aaron said to Moses, behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. And yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar weren't trying to disobey the Lord. They offered the sin and burnt offerings with the intent of obeying. They were seeking to do what was right. And when Aaron says, yet such things as these have happened to me, he's referring to his two eldest sons being consumed by fire. And he seems to be highlighting here the severity, the tragedy of the day's events. And the loss of his two eldest sons have made him hyper-cautious about what to do with the offerings. Aaron's comments here indicate that he and his remaining sons, they are not seeking to disobey. They are trying to carefully do what is right. So what's Moses' response? He approves. And given that Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar are not consumed by fire, we can assume that the Lord also approves. God shows Aaron and his surviving sons mercy. Now let's be clear here. This does not mean that them getting it wrong was okay. If somebody just put a drop of poison into your tea... You wouldn't just you know, try and scoop it out and then drink the rest of it, would you? No. You would tip the whole glass out. Sorry, tea, not the glass. In the same way, God's perfect holiness is transgressed by even the smallest disobedience. But praise the Lord, His mercy is deep. You see, what what seems to be happening here is God is showing mercy on Aaron and his remaining sons because of their respect for what happened earlier and because of their heart of obedience. And remember we saw earlier in the book in chapters 4 and 5 how sins that people were unaware of only had to, uh, they only had to bring a sin offering when they were made aware of it. That in itself indicates that God is being merciful to those who sin and don't even realize that they are, which of course is all of us. Do you see that? God's mercy, despite the fact that he is perfectly and purely holy and even the slightest transgression is is worthy of, of a consuming fire, his mercy is so deep that he pours it out to all who turn to him in repentance and faith. The Lord shows mercy here to Aaron and Eliezer and Ithamar because of their desire to be faithful. 
because of their intent, their, their, their heart, and because he is deep in mercy. Our God will never, ever turn away those who come to him in humility, in repentance, and in faith. And the Lord's holy mercy is, of course, seen in its purest form in our great high priest, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was perfectly obedient. He did not put a single toe out of line. His heart contained not a single black spot. His obedience to the Lord's commands was perfect to the letter. And yet the end goal of his life and his ministry was, as he says in Mark 10.45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of God who came down from heaven to tabernacle with us did so in order that we might escape the wrath of God the wrath that we justly deserve. He went to the cross. And on the cross, he bore the wrath of God. Though he was the only person to have ever lived who did not deserve it, he freely laid down his life. The Holy One was consumed by holy fire, so that through faith in him, all who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus would receive not God's fire, but his mercy. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel, of salvation in Christ. The salvation from sin that we could not provide for ourselves because of our inability to obey him perfectly has been mercifully given in Jesus. And because it is on his account that we are saved from the fire, we now have confidence in the Lord in our salvation. His blood has atoned for our sin. The basis of our standing before God and being accepted is Christ, is his perfect holiness. And if you've not yet responded to him in faith, then I would love to talk to you about that today. So does perfect obedience matter or a genuine heart of obedience? Well, in Christ, we receive his perfect obedience. And so we praise God that his perfect obedience is credited to us. And his mercy is shown to us through him. And yet the standard of God's holiness remains. And so we live in worship with the security of Christ's atoning sacrifice, but also the reverence of who the Lord is. 
Notice how in this chapter, the failure of both sets of sons to obey is not called good or okay in either example. They're never commended for doing wrong. They don't, Moses and the Lord, they don't turn a blind eye. They don't approve of their disobedience. But the Lord extends mercy to Eleazar and Ithamar. So it is with us. Hebrews 12, 28 to 29 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. We come now with confidence knowing that our great high priest intercedes for us. But we come still recognizing that he is a consuming fire. And so we worship with reverence and awe. We worship with a heart that seeks to obey. And we worship in full gratitude and praise of his mercy. Let's pray. Our Father, you are a consuming fire. And in our lives, our world of constant distraction of things taking our focus away, it is so easy to forget. So please, Lord, May we worship you with our whole being in all that we do. Recognizing your holiness. Recognizing all that you command for us. And recognizing your deep mercy that has been extended to us in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.